Warning, the following podcast is a shit show, and the individuals you are about to meet are idiots. Their opinions, anecdotes, and advice contain zero nutritional value. This is the critical human condition and all of its strangeness. This is life, according to an idiot. Hi, everyone. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. It's been a minute. So you know how in the last episode we talked about Jeremy getting bronchitis and then his cat dying and then something else happening that I don't remember? Since that, he has also contracted COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> hi, we're back. I tested negative today, though. Oh, that's good. So very little symptoms. It was totally fine. But I was telling Mo this, I have entered my cursed era. Yes. Yeah. It is in full motion. You have smited somebody who has a doll of you mm-hmm. somewhere and they're just like blowing on it. <laughs> hey, hell yeah. <laughs> Blow on that doll, please. <laughs> I just had an increase in nocturnal emissions and I have no idea why. An increase. <laughs> I was already at like three a night. It was very alarming. <laughs> I'm at six. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm very excited about this episode. We are talking about some fun government conspiracy theories. Ooh for you guys and it's very timely with the like government coming out and saying yeah there are aliens what the fuck did you expect yeah you dummies that's weird right what in the world yeah somehow the like it doesn't hit like i thought it would yeah everyone's just like we know it was so nonchalant beyond that it's such a weird time for like a soft launch of this like yeah okay cut to the chase right like what are you actually saying here i feel like we've been edging ourselves the past 80 years Mm -hmm. i think whenever roswell happened right show it now we know there's more yeah i was gonna say it's like a partner like if they've cheated but they won't admit that they've cheated they're just like something might have happened well obviously just fucking tell me yeah tell me the whole story so i can break up with you somebody blew in my voodoo doll (laughs) that's cheating in my book i need someone to blow on my voodoo doll you probably don't have one. I don't think you've wronged many people. I hope not. I think the only people... Do you think you have? I don't think you have. I could think of like a few people I've probably wronged. Well, I mean, okay, I guess exes probably. Yeah, like mostly exes. But they made me do it. They pushed me there. Fantastic, healthy yeah. way to talk about this. I wouldn't have hit them if they didn't make me do it. Exactly. If they didn't cause that minor inconvenience. I, right. I'm on board with you. I think it's stupid what they did, good what you did. You're right. I've never wronged anybody. Yeah. And anyone I have wronged... And I think, honestly, it helped them. It's their fault, right. And I helped them by showing them that they're wrong, so... Yes. <laughs> it's called valuable violence. <laughs> So, Jeremy, yeah. I have been holding on to this segment mm-hmm. only on the interwebs for months. I've been waiting for you to stop dying. And it's <laughs> yes. been honestly kind of terrible for me. Yeah. Because you've just been blue balling me mm-hmm. for months. I've been taking that voodoo doll and I've been putting an ice cube right, right. there on the, <laughs> on the voodoo scrote. <laughs> I've been trying to keep this a secret for so long. But now we can finally do it because we're finally recording a, a full episode. So I'm going to send you a script. And I would like to act it out with you. Oh, my God. (laughs) Only on the interweb. You are going to be Jeremy. Good. Okay. And I am going to be the stage direction and Mothman. So I went through a phase where I was making a bunch of chat GPT scripts. Okay. Because I like to write comedy sketches. So I decided to put this one in. The prompt that I gave was 
write a romance script of a quirky man named Jeremy who falls in love with the cryptid, the Mothman. Oh, God. And this is, this is what it gave. All right. Interior Cryptid Research Lab. Day. Jeremy, a quirky man in his mid-twenties, stands in front of a glass enclosure. Inside, we see a creature with large wings, glowing red eyes, and a furry body. The Mothman. <sighs> You're just so fascinating. So mysterious. Suddenly, the creature's eyes lock with Jeremy's. He feels a jolt of electricity run through his body. <laughs> oh god. I think I'm in love. Jeremy starts to visit the lab more frequently, spending more and more time in front of the Mothman's enclosure. He brings the creature gifts, fruits, nuts, and other snacks. One day, Jeremy's visit takes a strange turn. As he's feeding the Mothman, the creature reaches out with one of its long arm arms <laughs> and touches Jeremy's hand. Ugh! Did you just... touch me? The Mothman looks at Jeremy with its glowing red eyes. Jeremy stares back, transfixed. I don't care what anyone thinks. I love this creature. Jeremy starts to come up with elaborate plans to spend more time with the Mothman. He convinces his boss to let him work extra hours at the lab, and even volunteers to clean the creature's enclosure. <laughs> One day, while Jeremy is cleaning the enclosure, <laughs> the Mothman approaches him. Jeremy freezes, not sure what to do. The creature reaches out and touches his face with his long, furry fingers. I love you. I know it sounds crazy, but I love you. The Mothman looks at Jeremy for a moment, then spreads its wings and takes off into the air, disappearing into the distance. Jeremy is left standing in the enclosure, tears streaming down his face. No, no, no. Interior Cryptid Research Lab. Night. Jeremy is still cleaning the enclosure, wiping away tears. Suddenly, he hears a rustling in the corner of the room. He turns to see the Mothman, standing on its hind legs, looking at him. <laughs> you, you, you came back. The Mothman reaches out and takes Jeremy's hand. Jeremy feels a sense of peace and belonging. You know, right now I can hear my girlfriend in the hallway. She's chosen now to use the bathroom, and I know she's just hearing this out of context. <laughs> so, I just heard her laugh. So, okay, so Jeremy feels a sense of peace. Okay, so the Mothman yes. has returned to me. Mm -hmm. He takes my hand. I don't care what anyone thinks. I love you, and I always will. The Mothman looks at Jeremy, its red eyes glowing in the dim light. Jeremy leans in and kisses the creature's furry cheek. The two stand there for a moment just holding each other. I know we can never be together, but I'll always love you. The Mothman spreads its wings and takes off into the night sky. Jeremy watches, tears in his eyes, knowing that he has found true love in the most unexpected of places. Fade to black. Wow. It's beautiful. And not at all like Shape of Water. Oh, well, yeah, actually, pretty much. <laughs> Beautiful, though. I, I love how now we have seen the evolution, very brief evolution, of like AI generated, in this case, like mm -hmm. a script. It doesn't sound like it was written by a robot. It sounds like it was... It sounds like shitty Tumblr fan fiction. And like, exactly. that's pretty impressive because people really like that stuff. Not me, because I'm cultured, but other people. Of course. For sure. There is a young emo girl in 2013 on Tumblr somewhere who 
would have read that and probably would have thought about it mm-hmm. later. Yeah, absolutely. Would have loved it. Would have, it would have become part of her personality. You know, it's become part of my personality. Good. I'm glad. I, uh, I was hoping that. <laughs> I also like how your only lines in it were like, I love you. I know I shouldn't, <laughs> but I love you. <laughs> I know. I felt like a woman in a movie. <laughs> the only lines you give them are just like, no, oh, you're the best. I love you. <laughs> I know I'm only an accessory to you, but still, <laughs> you complete me. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> I wrote one too. I didn't end up saving this one, I don't think. And if I did, I don't remember where I put it. But I saved a script where me and you become best friends with Bigfoot. Oh, damn. And all he does is yelp. Fantastic. Oh, my God. I wish I could (laughs) read that. That one is very cute too. You're the only person I know who could write fan fiction suggestively about me and a creature. And I wouldn't be uncomfortable or disturbed. If anybody else was like, hey, so I wrote some fan fiction about you fucking Bigfoot Mm -hmm. or performing fellatio on the Loch Ness Monster, (laughs) I'd be like, what the fuck is the matter with you? But Mo does it. And I'm like, yeah, that's okay. Like, I'm kind of like happy that you did that, actually. It's kind of nice of you. I'm glad that you're spending your time safely. (laughs) So I think because this is going to be a little bit longer of a main segment today, we should just stick with the one segment and jump right into today's story. What do you think? I agree. Um, Today's story is going to be all about the Montauk Project. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm actually not sure. It's Montauk. Now that I'm saying it out loud. Montauk. Yeah. M-O-N-T-A-U-K. So we're going to start, though. I think we should start with... Yes, we're going to start with the 1943 Philadelphia Experiment. Um, But before we start with that, I am going to use the restroom. I waited for a little bit and I was like, you know what? I'm also going to take the time to pee. And I just want to remark on how much faster I urinated than you. Um, I came back before you came back and I had time to change my pants. So are you kidding me? I don't know if you remember what I was wearing. <laughs> I was so, of course I don't. I'm selfish. Uh, you wearing shorts now. Yeah. You know what? I am actually embarrassed now that was revealed because like that's more impressive than because I had a very mm-hmm. quick pee. Which means that you had a very quick return and change, yeah. a wardrobe change. I'm very quick. I just shoot it out. I do Kegels. And you just shoot out that shoot piss out. Exactly. from your vagina. Fantastic. <laughs> so speaking of pissing from vaginas, our <laughs> subject tonight, tonight, it's whatever time of day you're listening. Our subject for this episode is all about government military experiments and conspiracies. Yeah, these are like really bizarre ones, which is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. But if you don't understand, most people don't. Oh, yeah. So you're you're in the best company. Don't even worry about it. Mm -hmm. Sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? There is a secret government within our government. That's what it became, a black secret project. They wanted a large number of boys to be used for mind control operations. Unbelievable. Fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. Jeremy tried... Yeah, I... (laughs) I, we've, we've talked about this beforehand. I hated this. I hated yeah, Jeremy hated this. it. He's also trying to get out of mentioning a part of the project where they sent kids to Mars. 
No. So I'm holding him accountable so that he can't get out of mentioning that. Fuck, whatever. <laughs> so I'll mention it. I don't... Fuck that. So anyways, <laughs> what, what I like about this, though, is these two stories, we will tell you, are very closely related. I would even consider, like, sister stories. Little sisters. <laughs> they go together very well. Um, and they're, they are a continuation of each other. But our first one starts... As a, what is it, a Navy experiment? Yes. In the 1940s. Is this during World War II? Yeah. And, you, you know, World War II had a lot of weird shit going on. Nazis. Our president was in a wheelchair. That was fun. That was fun. That was <laughs> funny. That was fun. That was different. This sounds ableist of you. It is. <laughs> it is. Maybe the Nazis came because of the wheelchair. They came because of the wheelchair? <laughs> it's a fetish. Um, I'm going to write that down to make a, a new script later. Good. <laughs> Cancel me twice. Okay, so picture this. Carl M. Allen. He is an American merchant mariner during World War II. I'm going to call him Allen from now on because Allen seems more crazy to me as a name. I think Allen might be one of the most neutral names I've ever heard in my life. So it's interesting. I feel like compared that. to Carl, though, I just honestly don't like saying Carl either. Carl. Carl. I feel like my, my throat does weird things. Like I'm Carl. I'm having like gastric reflux <laughs> when I say it. <laughs> so I'm going to stick with Alan. Carl. Carl. Like I'm Carl. Alan. Alan. Alan's very open throat. Carl is like, I'm choking on my words. Exactly. You get it. You know, like a frog. I don't Carl. I, I hate it. <laughs> so <laughs> his family later interviewed described Alan as having a fantastic mind and being brilliant in school. However, he never held a job too long and was generally considered to be a drifter, a master, quote, leg puller and prankster in 1942. Whatever this guy did, I trust him. That's what I'm saying. A drifter, first of all, very accountable. Leg puller. Leg puller. That's just cute. What else are you going to pull, Alan? <sighs> I got a few ideas. <laughs> I, mean, I know we're all thinking it. <laughs> oh, voodoo doll. <laughs> in 1942... Alan joined the U.S. Marines, but was discharged less than a year later. I couldn't figure out why, but I'm assuming he was pulling too many things, even for the Marines. <laughs> Afterwards, he joined the U.S. Merchant Marines. Something interesting about him is that he held a lot of different aliases throughout his life, including Carlos Miguel Allende, Senor Professor, <laughs> <laughs> and Colonel Carlos Miguel Cristoforo. In 1955, an anonymous package labeled Happy Easter arrives in the U.S. Office of Naval Research, or ONR, with a copy of the book The Case for the UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects by Morris K. Jessup. The book, once they opened it up, contained a ton of handwritten notes in the margins annotating different sections of the book. And it appeared to be a debate between three individuals about flying saucers, alien races, and that Jessup was too close to discovering their technology. So it was people acting as though they're aliens. The notes in the book implied that they were written by aliens. Right. And that Jessup was too close to discovering their UFO hovering technology. So throughout the book, the commenters, the three different individuals, refer to each other as gypsies and discuss two different types of people who live in space. They're... Gypsies and space gypsies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Their writing had like an odd assortment of capitalization and punctuation. 
Only one of the individuals is named, and they were called Jemmy, and the others were referred to as Mr. A and Mr. B. So, no women, apparently. Well, I mean... No women aliens. Come on. Of course. <laughs> so, a few months later, after this book appears, Alan starts writing letters to what becomes hundreds of letters to Jessup with his various aliases. The first letter warns Jessup not to investigate the levitation of UFOs any further. Alan also included a story of science based on unpublished theories by Albert Einstein that had been put into practice at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in October 1943. So he tells him this story of a ship that he observed disappearing. That was an experiment done by the Navy. The theory, the science that he claims is dangerous and that they were experimenting with was called the unified field theory. And this describes mathematically and physically the interrelated nature of forces of electromagnetism and gravity. So this theory hasn't been proven to be correct yet, but it was a theory by Albert Einstein. And the idea is that it could be used to bend light around an object, making it invisible. The experiment that Alan describes that he witnessed in the letter to Jessup is that while he was aboard the SS Andrew Furuseth on October 28, 1943, he saw a naval destroyer escort named the USS Eldridge be made invisible. It was then teleported to Norfolk, Virginia for several minutes. That was like 200 miles away from where they were, so they were able to see it. It teleported for several minutes before reappearing a few minutes later. The ship's crew apparently suffered various side effects. Some went insane. Others were frozen in place. Some rematerialized inside out, and others vanished completely. God. Some of the crew ended up being placed inside the ship. Like some of their limbs ended up fused in the walls or the floor. It's been claimed that the crew was later brainwashed to maintain the secrecy of the experiment. When Jessup wrote back requesting more information, Alan said his memory would have to be recovered <laughs> and referred Jessup to a non-existent Philadelphia newspaper article that apparently covered the incident. But this article has never been seen or found by anyone. Jessup was later invited to the ONR to see the book with all the annotations, and he was able to identify the handwriting in the book as Carl Allen and he was able to identify him by all the letters that he had wrote him. Okay. This later came out, and the U.S. Navy claimed that no such experiment was ever conducted, and the details of the USS Eldridge contradict the story's timeline. So they're saying that they were never in Philadelphia, they were never even around there, but if they were teleporting, that doesn't fucking matter, does it? Because they could just pop in. It doesn't. It defies. They could. It defies logic. Exactly. They could just forge the ship's records if they brainwash people obviously they could just get away with it so not a very good response us of a oh, typical uh, <laughs> typical they also claim that the physics for this experiment are non-existent <laughs> yeah which is very convenient for them yeah usa <laughs> but interestingly two officers at the onr captain sydney sherby and george w hoover investigated the story they had a personal interest 
That was a quote from the U.S. document about it. Personal interest. Which was interesting. Hoover ended up discussing the story and the different annotations in the book that was sent to the ONR with an Austin and Stanton, who at the time was the president of Varro Manufacturing Corporation. And Stanton became incredibly interested in it and started making copies of Jessup's book with the annotations and Alan's letters. And they ended up making another book (laughs) with all of these included that became known as the Varro edition. So these circulated and started spreading the story of the 1943 Philadelphia experiment. Some personnel stated that it was a misunderstanding once it started circulating and that it was actually just routine research during World War II at the shipyard. They claimed that it was something called a degaussing experiment, which apparently is something that ships have where they discharge magnetic fields and it can have an effect of creating like a greenish glow that might make it appear that it's becoming invisible. Yeah. Other versions of the story state that the researchers were preparing magnetic and gravitational measurements for the seafloor. So these were connected, <laughs> supposedly, to secret Nazi experiments led by Hans Kammler. And alien technology allowed for the invisibility and teleportation to occur. So this is a separate theory. Okay. But this was connected to a top-secret government project called Operation Rainbow, supposedly carried out by Einstein himself. In other accounts of the experiment, the USS Eldridge was fitted with the needed equipment at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. Testing began in the summer of 1943, and it was partially successful. The Eldridge was nearly invisible, with a greenish fog taking its place. Most of the crew complained of nausea afterwards, and when the ship reappeared, some ship crew were embedded in the ship afterwards. Twelve years later, after the letters to Jessup, Alan came forward that he did author the annotations in the book to, (laughs) to quote, scare the hell out of Jessup, unquote. (laughs) Um, I couldn't find a reason why he would want to scare him or if they had any sort of previous relationship. That part is unknown. Leg puller. Yeah, the leg puller. Mm -hmm. Classic leg pulling right there. Find some random guy and decide to scare him. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) He supposedly wanted to get him to stop the investigation into unified field theory, which Alan viewed as dangerous. So he wrote these letters to scare him to get him to stop. But he later retracts this admission. So he does the takesies backsies and is like, I was just lying before. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) The perfect crime. The perfect crime. No one would know. Over the years, various writers and researchers tried to get more information from Alan but they always found his responses elusive or they could not find him at all. So more information has never been uncovered with this experiment. Mm -hmm. Some veterans who were around that shipyard at the time claim that the boat never left. But how would you know? It was only a few minutes, you know? Well, if you you were staring at the boat for a few minutes Mm -hmm. and it didn't leave, you would know. Exactly. It didn't leave. Exactly. Or that's what they want you to think. That's what they want you to think. Exactly. Yeah, that's better. (laughs) (laughs) It is widely accepted to be a hoax made up by Alan, the professional leg puller. Or maybe that's just what they want you to think. Uh, You took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) But it is gaining new believers after theories that it's connected 
to the Montauk Project. The Montauk Project? What the hey is that? Why, whatever... <laughs> I wish someone would tell me. <laughs> I wish someone read a book and a documentary on it so that I wouldn't have to. All right. Ugh. Well, you're in luck. <laughs> so the Montauk Project does derive from the Philadelphia Experiment. Mm -hmm. My sources for this were the Montauk Project Experiments in Time by Preston Nichols and Peter Moon, which is a horrible book you shouldn't read, <laughs> and the documentary Montauk Chronicles directed by Christopher Paul Garitano. Right. Also an interesting piece of media that you don't have to watch. And you were there. Yes. <laughs> 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 yes. Okay, moving on. Yes. Uh, Montauk. <laughs> so just to set the scene, I love to keep every episode front-loaded, all of my segments front-loaded with boring information. So I want to talk about Montauk, New York. Perfect. Let's take a little trip, shall we? So Montauk, New York is a small town that rests on the eastern edge of the Long Island Peninsula. That's right. Long Island is a peninsula. Everything you know is a lie. What? Long Island isn't an island. It's a peninsula. I don't even... I, you know, I don't know geography. You don't have to because it's a lie. Long Island is a peninsula. Everything you know is a lie. You you drive down a parkway and you park in a driveway. You know what I mean? Anyways, so... <laughs> what? Excuse me. God, God is dead. I'm trying to say God is dead and there's no meaning to anything. Although it's primarily known for its beaches... Montauk also offers a rich history, the remnants of which can be found in places like Montauk Point State Park, home to the historic Montauk Point Lighthouse. And the Montauk Monster. Do you want me to go into the Montauk Monster very briefly? Yeah. It was a dead raccoon. <laughs> um, so, built in... <laughs> For you guys who don't know, the Montauk Monster was a little thing that happened in, like, what, the 2010s? Didn't we, didn't we do, a like, a monster. mini on it or something? I don't think so. I feel like we've talked about it at some point. Google pictures of it. It's this weird-looking animal that has no fur and is washed up on the shores of Montauk. And they're pretty sure it's, like, a dead raccoon or something like that because there is an animal testing lab that's nearby on Montauk, I believe, or across from Montauk that they think may have escaped and then drowned mm -hmm. like a hero. Other theories are that it's connected to the Montauk Project, and it was a mutated animal. That's what they want you to think. They want you to think it's a raccoon. That's right. That's true. You're becoming a sheep. Oh, fuck. You're becoming a sheep just like the rest of them. Oh, shit. I've become a sheep. <laughs> Damn. So, the lighthouse. Kind of involved with the story we're going to talk about, but it just, there's a lot of history in Montauk, a weird amount of history. So built in 1796, it was the first lighthouse built in New York State, and its construction was the first ever public works project undertaken by the U.S. government. Wow. It was this lighthouse. Coincidence? <laughs> I don't know. You be the judge. <laughs> it was commissioned by President George Washington. Wow. That dude that's on the quarter and the dollar wow. and chopped down a tree. And has wooden teeth. No, actually, he he wore slaves' teeth. That's disgusting. Right? He had a he had dentures, and they were connected by a metal spring that would allow him to open his jaw. So, can you imagine how terrifying this man looked? Oh my god, I wouldn't fuck with him either. I'd be like, you know what? Keep the Americas. That's your yeah. leader. Old metal mouth. Yeah. Keep it all. <laughs> Just like the, the sound of him talking. He probably couldn't hear what he's saying because all I could hear was like the creaking of the rusting metal in his mouth. Yeah, I imagine those little like wind up teeth chattering toys. Mm -hmm. That's what I imagine he looks like. Yeah, it's, he looks exactly like that with a wig on top. <laughs> 
The lighthouse remained in operation until World War II when the U.S. Army took it over. Coincidence? I don't know. <laughs> so the military made use of Montauk from around the time of the Revolutionary War. And since then, the small town has been home to Army, Navy, Coast Guard, and Air Force bases. Camp Hero, or Fort Hero, also called the Montauk Air Force Station, was a military base built in 1942 and will be the setting for the story of the Montauk Project. More specifically, it was a coastal defense station made to protect from a potential invasion of New York by sea. Mm -hmm. In 1984, Camp Hero was donated to the National Park Service due to the numerous animal habitats and rare ecosystems existing within it, and it now operates as Camp Hero State Park. While today it serves as a national park with wildlife sanctuaries and family-friendly amenities that make it an inviting tourist destination, the hollowed grounds are alleged to have contained government-sanctioned atrocities centered around brutal human experiments. Like sending kids to Mars. <laughs> Isn't that brutal and <laughs> sick? You should only send raccoons to Mars and then chuck them into the ocean afterwards. But they all came back smarter. <laughs> the Montauk Project, as a conspiracy theory, stands as a testament to American paranoia. And I think this theory is so popular because I think in this day and age, there isn't a lot of trust with the government. Mm -hmm. That has, I think, gotten away from us so much that we assume the government is capable of doing these insane, which they are, insane atrocities. They have. But the ones that you hear in conspiracy theories like this are very fantastical and badass. Yeah. And the government, I do not believe, does badass atrocities. I don't think that exists. Right, they do really dumb ones. Like the cat one, where they were trying to hook up recording devices and cats. Oh, yes, yes. See, I was thinking more about how like they topple foreign democracies, but that's also <laughs> true. And also like give an entire country of people syphilis. Yeah, well, they, they did that here. Wasn't that in Haiti? Didn't they, the, did they do that in Haiti? I'm sure they did it everywhere, but they did it to um, African-American populations. They would give injected a large population of black males mm -hmm. with um, syphilis and just to see what would happen, which is really fucked up. Yeah. So I think that a conspiracy theory says more about the culture it exists in than what it is criticizing, you know, what it's about, mm -hmm. you know. So for America, it says our government has outgrown us. We do not trust or understand what they can do, what they're capable of. They kind of are a boogeyman. Mm -hmm. Let's crack into this. The only decisive origin point on the Montag Project timeline is Preston Nichols, who wrote the 1992 book, the Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, alongside with author Peter Moon. The book was published as science fiction, but its authors have long asserted that all plot points and details are stark nonfiction. So Preston Nichols writes this book from his perspective. Mm -hmm. According to Nichols, in the book, his account had been lost to him for years until suddenly returning to him as a revelation of sorts, claiming his experience had been a long repressed memory until he, quote, regained the blanked memories of a role as chief technician for the project only after years of struggle. Hmm. So when Nichols allegedly partook in secretive and otherworldly experiments on behalf of our government, Camp Hero was operating as an Air Force base, the Montauk Air Force Station. Somewhere deep in the bowels of the fortified station, secret experiments were conducted. So he, so I'm sorry, what was his role working there? We'll get into it more. He was the chief engineer. Okay. Or like head technician. Oh, pretty much okay. ran the project. Mm-hmm. In terms of like the general progress of it. Oh, I see. There was other people above him. So he's like the director. Exactly. He had that much power. This was all done with the goal of developing psychological warfare techniques and weaponry for the Department of Defense. Advanced tech that could inflict madness and intense hallucination. Oof. According to Nichols, time travel was another key interest. 
The essence of the story was wrapped up concisely in a 1993 advertisement for a workshop hosted by Nichols and other Montauk alum, which read, The Montauk Project has been called one of America's greatest modern mysteries. The story began with the pioneering work of Wilhelm Reich and Nikola Tesla, took form in the government-sponsored weather control experiments in the early 1940s, and crystallized in the ill-fated Philadelphia experiment on invisibility during World War II. The Philadelphia experiment was closed, but long-term research continued. The Montauk Project, running through the 1970s and 80s at New York's Montauk Air Force Base, was an attempt to explore, chart, and ultimately manipulate the flow of time. So they saw, like, the Philadelphia experiment and were, like, wanting to do similar things. So, like, a few years later, you said in the 70s, they, like, started it up again, but this time with time travel? Well, so it never totally concluded. Mm -hmm. So it started originally as invisibility, and then they found a way to do something else, which was transport it. Mm, Okay. And then after years of research, they eventually, as they researched it, found out that more could be manipulated through like psychic training. What's the project that we talked about where it dealt heavily with psychics and stuff? MKUltra. Yes, right. Montauk Project is definitely, if it were to be real, it would have been like influenced by MKUltra mm-hmm. with mind control and stuff right. like that. So MKUltra came before Project Montauk. Well, so MKUltra lasted from like the 60s to the 70s, I think. 50s to the mm-hmm. 70s. So, I mean, MKUltra was real. Right. Montauk Project probably isn't. Supposedly. Supposedly. That's what they would want you to believe. <laughs> so I'll start now with the basic story beats that are present in the book, which is, again, the main source of the story of the book by Preston Nichols. And it follows Preston Nichols as he recovers his memory of working with psychics underground at this Air Force station. In the way you're saying that makes it sound like Preston nipples. Like I'm pressing <laughs> nipples. <laughs> I've been pressing these nipples all day. So Preston, oh God, I'll just go start calling him Nichols. But Preston Nichols, born 1946, was an electrical engineer who worked as a radar technician and had a primary interest in electromagnetism. In the early 70s, Nichols was hired on as an engineer by a defense contractor on Long Island. Under this defense contractor, he assisted with an experimental study on telepathy and claimed that his findings showed proof that the phenomena existed. Oh, my God. If you're hoping for more detail, you're out of luck. (laughs) Although Nichols gives no description of how these tests and experiments were performed, the book vaguely mentions that tests were conducted on self-proclaimed psychics using electromagnetic monitoring equipment. The psychics were instructed to engage in telepathic communication, and using his mystery ham radio system, whatever it was, Nichols could detect unique activity on the airwaves that could isolate and trace back to the test subject. So essentially, he saw proof that when they performed telepathy, it was a literal signal in the air. It was a, what he calls, telepathic waves. So Nichols claimed that the signals he recorded behaved similarly to radio waves. Nichols would carry on his research outside of work, monitoring psychic volunteers on his own time. And by 1974, Nichols had acquired a large body of data and noticed a consistent trend in his findings. Nichols writes, quote, Every day at the same hour, their minds would be jammed. They couldn't think effectively, unquote. Suspecting that interference from an electronic signal could be the culprit, Nichols used his radio equipment to scan the air and eventually determined that a 410 to 420 megahertz cycle was routinely broadcasting at a recurring hour. Maybe that's why society in general is less fantastical and whimsical, because 
We have so much electromagnetism near us. I've been saying this for years. It's It dumbs us down. We can't think. I've been saying this for years. We can't do anything. You know, like yes. all of us that feel aloof most of the time actually just have psychic powers and we're being dumbed down because we can't use our powers like we should be able to. Exactly. And that is a convenient narrative that helps me feel less like a loser. That's why we all need to just go to Burning Man. Hell yeah, dude. You know, be free. Burn the radios. Burn the TVs. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That Wi-Fi router in the back of your house? Fucking unplug that witchcraft. Return it to Spectrum. Return it to spe Spectrum. Google. AT&T. Charter. The char <laughs> <laughs> what other ones are there? Bing. What are you ta You're talking about like search engines. <laughs> Verizon makes routers. <laughs> So there was this 410 to 420 megahertz cycle that was routinely broadcasting at a recurring hour. For the full duration of the mystery signal, the psychics would fail to perform telepathy. Once this cycle completed, their telepathic communication was able to continue. Quote, I decided to trace the signal, Nichols writes, placing a modified TV antenna on the roof of my car. I grabbed a VHF receiver and set out looking for the source of it. I tracked it right to Montauk Point. It was coming from a red and white radar antenna on the Air Force Base. They just like let him in so he could well, no, he, figure out what their source was. He's like, guys, um, I promise I'm not here for any tomfoolery. I just got this little machine here. I am not a leg puller. <laughs> yeah. I love Preston Nichols. Not as a man. He's, I don't think he's a good man. <laughs> but I love him because he is within my range of voices I could impersonate. His voice, he talks like this. Oh my god, that's amazing. His nose does nothing at all. <laughs> and he talks about radios. I'm, I go to ham fests every year. I love my ham radios. Everything that I might have believed from this man just went out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Same. As soon as I heard him talk, I'm like, you're him. <laughs> and he looks like if Shrek was a person. Okay. And only worn, wore like old polo shirts with the neck all stretched out. That's, mm. that's, what, that's this guy. That makes sense. That feels right. So at that point in time, the Air Force Station was still in operation. And according to uh, Nichols, the site was secured by security guards who, shockingly, wouldn't grant entrance to a paranoid man with a large radio antenna mounted suspiciously on the top of his car. <laughs> I don't know why. But after some clever detective work, Nichols was able to squeeze some general info from one of the guards. The mysterious signal coming from the military radar was part of a project being run by the FAA, or the Federal Aviation Administration. Nichols could smell that something was fishy, and it wasn't just him. <laughs> and he recognized the radar in question was an antiquated radar defense system from World War II called a SAGE radar. The radar Nichols refers to in the book is real and is still standing as a historical landmark. The remaining AN... FPS-35 radar, which began operation in 1960, is the last of the Air Force Station's multiple radar systems. It was used at the start of the Cold War when fear of a theoretical air invasion from the Soviets was at an all-time high. This episode is for the radio nerds. <laughs> Absolutely. Of our listeners. You know, if you're, if you're listening right now, this is going to be a little teaser. If you like radios... Prepare to get wet. Yeah, this is for you. Yep. We're doing that and we're pressing nipples. We're pressing those nipples. Get ready. Pressing those nipples and we're tuning on those ham radios. <laughs> so interesting enough, the ANFPS-35, hate these names, was so powerful that it disrupted local TV and radio broadcast to the extent that it had to be shut down and recalibrated multiple times. Mm. So it's super powerful and it definitely fucks with shit that we use. Okay. So today the radar antenna stands atop an old concrete tower with its massive 40 foot wide steel dish now left to decay from its perch high above the tree line. 
With its control motors and electronics long removed, the corroded radar dish can be seen rotating faintly in the wind. It looks ominous for sure. I feel like if Mothman lived anywhere, he would live there. He loves abandoned military installations, so yeah, of course. Right, yeah. Anyway, Preston Nichols had hit a wall with his research and with uncovering the purpose of the rogue signal being emitted from the Air Force Station. Years later, in 1984, Nichols received a tip from a friend that the Montauk Air Force Station was defunct, and it now laid empty in a state of neglect. Nichols ventured out to the site, surprised by the absence of security measures, with the gated entrance left unlocked and open, as were some windows in the buildings within. It's probably like the best day of his life. The best phone call he ever got. Oh my god, there's so much debris. <laughs> As he strolled the grounds cluttered with loose papers and large debris, Nichols' neurodivergent, ham-radio-obsessed brain led him toward the various pieces of high-voltage equipment. Keeping note of especially attractive hardware, he rang the surplus disposal agency to place bids on what he assumed was decommissioned military tech up for auction, which is a thing that happens when stuff is left on a military base. After a month of phone tag, Nichols was finally put in touch with an officer at a military terminal in New Jersey. The man explained that there was no record of any existing equipment at the Montauk station, so Nichols was free to claim whatever junk he wanted. The guy also set him up with uh, who was the caretaker of the facility, like the groundskeeper. Mm, okay. And so Preston took a friend who was a psychic named Brian. Of course. <laughs> Let me call my psychic Brian. They toured the site and they were looking at stuff because essentially he wanted help picking up heavy stuff he could take home and yeah. mess with. Him and his psychic friend, as they were walking around, they split up like every good Scooby-Doo cartoon. <laughs> and upon entering one of the site's abandoned buildings, Nichols met a homeless man who greeted him and claimed to recognize Nichols. After chatting, the homeless man reveal, was revealed to be a former employee from before the facility had shut down. Hmm. Okay. He had been living on the base following a disastrous incident that had caused the base to be shut down. The squatter, a former technician at the location, had gone AWOL just before shit had hit the fan and therefore resigned to hiding out in the ruins of his former workplace. The homeless man convinced Nichols with a rich knowledge of the technical processes that he had carried out on past projects at the base. And he also mentioned that a terrifying beast had escaped the lab and destroyed the base and left it in the condition what? that it was. I know. Wow. It gets weird. It gets real goofy. So what I found was kind of interesting is in the book, he leaves out any of the information that the homeless guy tells him. He's like, he told me a lot of interesting info, but like you never actually get any mm. true information. You get a lot of like, I heard something very interesting. Oh, okay. So it's just like blue balled relentlessly. A hundred percent the entire way there. And he talks radios for like 10 paragraphs every chapter. <laughs> As their conversations began to wind down, the homeless man dropped a huge bombshell. He didn't just recognize Nichols from anywhere. He insisted that Nichols worked alongside him back when the base was still in operation. And Nichols was his boss. What? As anyone would do upon being told that they had worked on a secret government project that had been mysteriously wiped from their memory, Nichols left. <laughs> Is that like what he wrote? <laughs> no, he literally just says, after I talked to him, I left. <laughs> and I'm like, you just left after you talked? I'm like, <laughs> that's what you do? And the guy who told him that is probably just like, what the? <laughs> what the fuck? He didn't even say bye. Uh, he wandered back out into the abandoned site and met with his psychic friend, Brian, which is, again, possibly the most unpsychic name a psychic could have. <laughs> the psychic complained that, quote, things weren't right and that he was feeling some very funny vibrations. Oh, my That's God. a direct quote from the book. I'm like, okay. Uh, Nichols asked Brian to carry out a psychic reading of the location. In his reading, Brian described irregular weather patterns, mind control, 
and a vicious beast. Wow. Yeah, Nichols and Brian gathered whatever discarded technical equipment they could manage and left the military station. And weeks later, Nichols welcomed a strange visitor into his home lab, a man claiming to have worked under him years ago at Montauk. Nichols had no recollections of what the stranger described, but it matched what the homeless man and Brian had told him. Wow. Nichols tried his best to disregard these bizarre encounters with acquaintances from a past he had no memory of. But as the mystery of Montauk eclipsed his daily life, Nichols planned a week-long trip to Montauk where he camped out on the beach. Oh my God, <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> so derelict. And frequented the local bars. Okay. Totally cool research. I was going to say, this, this feels like... You know when you watch like a Pixar movie or something and they're like, how do we get information? Oh, we just go talk to people. This feels kind of like that where they're like, I don't really know how to do things, but like I watch movies a lot. Exactly. Surely I just go to the bar and ask people and eventually someone will know something. Yes. (laughs) Put on a a long trench coat Mm -hmm. and had a magnifying glass with them and was walking around going like, pardon me, uh, (laughs) do you ever see a monster around here? You guys ever hear about a monster destroying facilities? Yeah, I'm doing research. Just gets really frustrated that no one knows what the fuck he's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) He talked to everyone he could about the local abandoned Air Force Station. He gathered dozens of stories about bizarre weather anomalies that had hit the town in previous years. Uh, Random hurricane force winds emerging on a calm day, surprise thunderstorms and hailstorms striking suddenly from clear skies, and six separate stories about snowstorms in the middle of August, Mm. which is normal now because our climate... Climate change, right. Our climate is in disrepair, but at the time, this was very strange. There were non-meteorological mysteries, too. Stories surfaced of animals stampeding through town suddenly and in mass numbers, causing property damage. Mm. The town's chief of police humored Nichols' inquiry and mentioned that occasionally law enforcement would see unusual upticks in crime reported in isolated two-hour periods, then stop altogether. Weird. So with that, we're going to jump to our next player in this dark web of lies. Mm, Okay. Duncan. Duncan Donuts? Duncan Donuts make me go nuts. <laughs> I need a Duncan Donuts conspiracy. I want some Duncan Donuts right now. That sounds fucking good. I, I love donuts so much. I do too. You know what has really good donuts? Hmm. Austin, Texas. Uh, trying to lure me. A little honey pot. <laughs> Luring me to your little town. Yeah, I am. We got cowboys. Oh, I'm in board then. You tell me you don't want to see cowboys? Cowboys and... Du- oh mm-hmm. my goodness. And drag queens. Now combine those all together... And you're blowing up my voodoo doll right there. Uh, In November 1984, Nichols began working with a psychic named Duncan Cameron. Duncan was an enthusiastic young man who was eager to take part in the work Nichols was conducting. Nichols' previous psychic assistant, Brian, who we know very well, Mm -hmm. expressed distrust in Duncan and decided to part ways with Nichols. Although it totally sounds like he was just jealous. Brian was jealous of Duncan? Yeah. He's like, don't listen to him, Preston. He's not a true psychic like I am. Oh, my God. And then Preston was like just excited to be around people who wanted to be around him. (laughs) He's like, you'll listen to me talk about radios for two hours? Talk about ham. (laughs) As Nichols and Duncan grew closer, Nichols decided to drive them out to the abandoned Air Force Station in Montauk, see what Duncan can pick up. Immediately, Duncan experienced intense deja vu and quickly began articulating vague memories from the station. He was able to point at buildings on site and remember what each had been used for and how they looked on the inside. The two strolled the site, and upon entering the transmitter building, which is where the radar dish was Mm -hmm. on top of, Duncan entered a trance and began blurting out a stream of information about what experiments had been conducted in and around the transmitter building. 
Days later, at Nichols' home lab, Duncan was coaxed into a calm, meditative state where he could more effectively access his deep psyche and relay further information about Montauk. Duncan grew emotional as he unblocked forgotten memories, explaining that he had been part of a series of mind-control experiments conducted in secret at Montauk Air Force Station, starting when he was just a boy. Duncan surprised Nichols and himself when he relayed that he had been programmed to find a certain Preston B. Nichols. <gasps> oh my god, how does how, his name... Preston B. Nichols. <laughs> this sounds like... Preston, middle initial B for Bipples. <laughs> And last name Nichols. <laughs> Did I tell you I'm taking a, a screenwriting class right now? No. And I think that I need to make this into like a movie <laughs> or like a short series, <laughs> like a comedy, yeah. you know, sitcom type thing. Yeah. Because this sounds too... This is a comedy. Yeah. This is a comedy. It's like writing itself. So Duncan surprised Nichols and himself when he relayed that he had been programmed to find a certain Preston B. Nichols. <laughs> Did you not? Okay, when you were nickel bickle, when you were writing these notes, did it not occur to you that it sounds like Preston? Because I never said it out loud. I never said it out loud. So Preston, Preston (laughs) Bean, Preston (laughs) be programmed to find Preston B. Nichols, earn his trust, and then kill him and destroy his laboratory. (gasps) What, Duncan? No, Duncan. No. Duncan, after his trance session, Duncan apologized to Nichols and swore to reject his apparent programming. Oh my god. From that moment, Duncan opted to maintain a working relationship with Nichols, determined to delve deeper into his subconscious and recover information about Montauk. Earlier into Nichols' session with Duncan, suppressed memories from long ago resurfaced during one of Duncan's trances. Duncan uncovered memories from his time working on the Philadelphia experiment. No, that's your thing. Wow, that's what I talked about. That's what you talked about. Uh, According to Duncan, he had somehow served aboard the USS Eldridge in 1943 with his brother Edward Cameron. Wow. Over the course of Duncan's revelations about his erased past and the occurrences at Montauk, Nichols was shocked to find his own forgotten memories began to gradually reemerge of his time working at the Montauk Air Force Station. That sounds like, hold on, you can't have more attention than me. You can't be cooler. All of a sudden, I'm remembering (laughs) things. Honestly, yes. Hold on a second. I'm the narcissist here. (laughs) In his book, Nichols writes about leaking the information gleaned from his and Duncan's repressed memories and the technology recovered at the abandoned station and providing their info to a U.S. senator who remains unnamed, but I am convinced it is either, based on the information they gave me, John McCain, Harry Reid, Jeff Bingaman, Don Nichols, Orrin Hatch, Malcolm Wallop, or Lloyd Benson. Oh my god. That's the level of research you're getting from me, okay? I am so thankful. Thank you. Because they said they provided the info to the senator, who Nichols had ties to through an associate whose nephew worked for the senator. Uh, They said it was a senator from a southwest state, and the year was 1986. So... It's, I, I'm thinking it's Malcolm Wallop by the dates I've looked over. Malcolm Wallop was a Southwest state senator. Okay. Elected in that year, and he retired around the time the book came out. So I'm like, that's probably what it, that's probably what's going on. Hmm. Okay. Anyways, I just, that's kind of a little fucking brag on my part that I am a fucking genius. It sounds, okay, this is like very indicative of like you becoming middle-aged, not middle-aged, but like mid-twenties, you know? I like know. Shut up, I know. <laughs> you God. get excited when <laughs> you can research. I'm the senator. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know what senator that was, Southwest State. Uh, that could only be one guy. While you chums were drinking alcohol and having sex, <laughs> I found the senator that pressing nipples found out. <laughs> pressing be nipples. <laughs> I be pressing the nipples. So 
the senator was got very involved with the possibility of the secret psyop, and he was like, you know, very intrigued by allegedly. I'm sure he's this is all fucking made up, <laughs> but he was very intrigued by the data he was seeing. He went to the site. He didn't find anything. He allegedly contacted Preston personally. It was like, hey, listen, you're doing great work. Don't stop fighting the good fight. But I can't have you talking about this because it will jeopardize the continuing of this uh, investigation. Okay, are you telling me, though, that if it were like someone like Ted Cruz, they would not do some shit like that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I see now with like what's happening with the UFOs, congressmen are really getting involved with this stuff. So like, you know, uh, this could be a real thing where a senator is like actually interested, mm -hmm. especially a senator who is against black budget stuff and government overspending, mm -hmm. which is why I narrowed it down to Malcolm Wallop. <laughs> it fits perfectly. If I know him like his Wikipedia page told me, <laughs> I think he would be against government overspending, especially when it's not on the books. Anyways. If, he, if his campaign did not include like... I'm going to give homelessness a wallop. And that's the wallop That was promise. my fucking first thought. I'm like, if he didn't say, like, I'll wallop my competition, then, like, what's he doing? Yeah, what's the fucking point? Step down, sir. At the time, uh, Nichols was experiencing a resurgence of unexplainable forgotten memories. He was still working for a military contractor, mind you. His apparent double life began to come through at work in odd ways. People he hadn't met before were recognizing him. He was copied on mail and invited to meetings that didn't concern his department or position in the company. One day, while working at his desk, Nichols felt an ache on the back of his hand. When he looked down, there was a band-aid covering a fresh wound on the back of his hand, which wasn't there minutes ago. Oh my god, he teleported and got injured and came back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or he just has a mental disorder and then he forgets things. So, <laughs> the case of the magically appearing band-aid occurred several times over the course of a month or so. Oh my god. In one instance, Nichols rushed to the company nurse and asked if they had given him a band-aid that day. The nurse denied ever providing him one. <gasps> and so he made a promise to himself, not joking. He was like, I made a point to tell myself I would never go to the nurse for a band-aid. <laughs> <laughs> that way, I knew that when I saw a band-aid, it wasn't my own doing. So this small glitch in Preston's day-to-day -day life was the first clue that he may be living two separate lives at the same oh time. Oh my god, like Fight Club. Like Fight Club, except he was did look nothing like Brad Pitt. <laughs> he looked like Armpit. Oh. Uh, as he focused on his mystery <laughs> wounds, a memory came to him. It was a glimpse into what felt like an alternate reality. In this alternate reality, Nichols' job required him to move and maneuver heavy equipment that only he had access to. And the equipment was heavy and difficult, so when he would move it alone, he would hurt himself and bruise or cut his hands, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so he realized that's where the band-aids are coming from. One day at work, Nichols felt an overwhelming urge to go into the basement of his workplace. The basement was reserved for a higher security clearance, but Nichols trusted his intuition. Upon reaching the security checkpoint that Nichols knew he wasn't permitted to pass, the guard waved him through and handed him a security card. Nichols entered the basement level and found himself walking down a corridor of executive office suites. He knew he had never been there before, but his instincts guided him to a lavish office with a desk that had a nameplate that read Preston B. Nichols, Assistant Project Director. Oh my god. He's got an office he didn't even know about. So Nichols spent six hours reading through a catalog of papers in his newfound desk. That's where he learned about his involvement with the Montauk Project. Nichols was confused. He had been putting in a full day's work at his job as an engineer, but the documents he uncovered implied that he was somehow working full-time as a project director in Montauk. 
This led Nichols to theorize that he was somehow existing on two separate but adjacent timelines. That's the only conclusion. And in all that time, neither timelines, he couldn't have bought new clothes. <laughs> he couldn't have cleaned up a little bit. Really, Preston? Interesting. Learned how to use his nose. Yeah. Uh, so the Montauk Project, let's get dive into the actual project itself. By 1990, both Preston Nichols and Duncan Cameron had regained full memory of their participation on the Montauk Project. Which is, how fun would it be if you made a friend and you guys both discovered missing memories and those memories included you guys being even better friends. That's cute. Not only are we friends now, we were friends in the past. Brian is fucking raging at this. In 1967, scientists at Brookhaven Labs on Long Island had finally resolved the failures and questions that had come from the Philadelphia experiment starting around 1948. The Philadelphia experiment aimed to create a stealth cloaking device, as you mentioned before, akin to invisibility, but it ended up exhibiting a type of teleportation. At the end of the 19-year-long study, the scientists had basically developed a kind of pseudo-time travel process, and more importantly, mind control. So when a final report was submitted to Congress, it offered a series of dark and inhumane proposals, namely that human consciousness can be affected by severe electromagnetic manipulations, and that it was now possible to develop and weaponize technology that could forcibly change the way a human thinks. Mm. Congress rejected the proposal and ordered that the project be fully disbanded by 1969. The leaders at Brookhaven Labs turned around and approached the military-industrial complex with a backroom deal to develop a weapon capable of controlling the thoughts and actions of enemy forces. They kind of rebranded it mm. and it was like, hey, fuck Congress. Let's just do this between us, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, we don't gotta get married, baby. We love each other. What, what does a ring have to do with this? Why get the <laughs> government involved? Realizing the potential of infinite victory and conquest, the military elites funded the Shadow Project. Brookhaven supplied a list of resources requesting to occupy a secure site with access to a high-power radar device that could operate at 425 to 450 megahertz. What does that sound like? A weapon. <laughs> Close. The Montauk Air Force Station. <laughs> ah! The military offered space at the Montauk Air Force Station, whose decommissioned SAGE radar system, which is what I was referring to, could be modified to do the job. By the way, the 425 to 450 megahertz frequency was purportedly the window frequency to override the human consciousness. Wow. Is that what social media has? Oh, <laughs> oh all the kids on the Facebook. <laughs> the project was named Phoenix 2, colloquially known as the Montauk Project. Launching in 1971, Nichols would hire on in around 1973 and work alongside a staff made of military personnel, government employees, and corporate contract workers, which is who he was. One of their first more interesting creations was what was called the Montauk Chair. It started with what Nichols called the microwave test. The radar tower's reflector, which is the giant metal dish, would be aimed due west and angled down at a building on site containing a chair in a shielded room. A psychic test subject, which was Duncan Cameron in most cases, would sit in the chair and be monitored as the radar tower reflector carried UHF, ultra-high-frequency rays, from the radar transmitter and directed the electromagnetic radiation into the room holding the test subject. So blasting gigawatts of power into the shielded room, the scientists observed the effects of various pulse widths. Pulse widths. You follow? <laughs> uh, and <laughs> pulse rates and frequencies on the subject. They found that certain changes influenced the subject's bodily functions. Some caused crying, laughter, anger, and even sleep. Hmm. It was common knowledge that whenever the SAGE radar was in operation, the collective mood on base would change as well. 
Interesting. So with the 425 to 450 megahertz of radio frequency power, the test operators had full control of the subject's biological functions, and therefore their minds. Though harmless for the test subjects, repeated daily exposure could damage a person's insides. Duncan allegedly sustained brain and tissue damage due to the shielded room failing to actually shield harmful radiation. Mm -hmm. His continuous exposure to 100 kilowatts of RF power from just 100 yards away, quote, baked his brains and chest. According to Nichols, brain scans of Duncan in 1986 revealed extensive damage resulting in so little oxygen being capable of reaching his uh, cerebrum that Duncan could be classified as medically brain dead. Oh my God. This is like actual or is this just i mean this was in the book this is from a real book (laughs) pretend it is pretend it is for the listeners okay oh my god nichols theorized that duncan's psychic aptitude was the only thing keeping him alive and functional okay all right the montauk chair this is the, the bigger one the montauk chair was a large metallic chair covered in coils and sensors and connected to it were three receivers with six channel outputs that were run through a digital converter that fed into a supercomputer the computer A Cray-1 supercomputer was renowned for performing 240 million calculations per second and simulating complex physical phenomena. The Cray-1 decoded what the receivers picked up, and a bunch of 1970s scientists with mustaches worked their magic so that the (laughs) computer could print out a dialogue of the subject's thoughts. Additionally, there was a monitor that was added to it that could translate those thoughts into like 3D images. Mm -hmm. So essentially they were seeing his thoughts. Interesting. This would eventually progress into a new psychic technology nicknamed the seeing eye. Duncan was advanced enough to the point where he could be placed in the Montauk chair with another person's belonging. In the book, they mentioned, like, I think, a lock of hair. Mm-hmm. And Duncan could telepathically locate and channel that person. And then he could see through the target's eyes, hear through their ears, and feel with their bodies. So he could kind of inhabit them. Ew. At a certain point, he could physically contact anyone on Earth, kind of like an astral projecting almost, mm-hmm. and basically override their thoughts with his own. So control what they thought and felt and manipulate their actions. With this development, the U.S. military now had something even more powerful than mind control that could physically control everything. Mm -hmm. So in these experiments, Duncan proved capable of using psychic energy to perform destructive acts as small as focusing on any random storefront window and shattering it, to influencing the local wildlife to charge through town suddenly and in mass numbers. Mm -hmm. Duncan could even control the emotions and actions of large groups, triggering sudden brief crime waves in town. It got to the point where a psychic subject like Duncan could, for lack of a better word, upload full commands onto an unwilling person's mind, meaning that any civilian could be used like a sleeper agent to carry out tasks or even assassinations on the military's behalf. At its peak, the project succeeded in manifesting physical objects out of thin air. What? Duncan would be hooked up to a far improved version of the Montauk chair and instructed to imagine a random object. Now, the tech, it makes no sense... He thinks of something, and then on the monitor, you they would see, like, the object manifest through, like, that wireframe kind of matrix old animation style. Yeah, yeah. They would see the kind of object appear on screen, and then it would manifest somewhere on base. So he'd think of, like, a coffee mug. He would think about it, think about it. On the monitor, you'd see a coffee mug start to manifest, and then somewhere on the base, a coffee mug would pop up out of thin air. This would eventually, believe it or not, lead to time travel. So, John van Neumann was a Hungarian-American physicist and polymath who, among many accomplishments in the field of math and science, famously worked on the Manhattan Project. He was essential to the creation of the hydrogen bomb and the project's success in general. Now, von Neumann died in 1951 at the age of 53, or at least that's what they want you to think. Oh, my God. 
According to Preston Nichols, Neumann held a lead role on the disastrous Philadelphia experiment and was placed in witness protection afterwards. Nichols claimed to meet Neumann, who was now a very old man, and they compared notes. Nichols was curious how his work in Montauk was connected to the Philadelphia experiment. Mm -hmm. Van Neumann revealed to Nichols that when the USS Eldridge reappeared after teleportation, it killed a majority of the crew on board. Yeah. But Neumann proposed a solution that could have prevented it. At the time of the experiment, one of the ship's generators had failed, causing a chain reaction that interrupted the mission and caused mass casualties. Neumann suggested that if someone could be sent back in time to disable the busted generator, that USS Eldridge would theoretically teleport back safely. Bang, bang, boom. Crisis averted. Right. Mm -hmm. For this rescue mission, Nichols and Neumann selected Duncan Cameron and Al Bilek. Al Bilek is a crazy old man who claimed to be part of this. Mm -hmm. A consultant at Montauk claims to be one of the two sailors who, quote, fell through time from the 1940s to 1983, part of the Philadelphia Project. Weirdly enough, Al Bilek claimed to have been originally born as Edward Cameron, the brother of Duncan Cameron. Alien tech was used by the government to erase him from his own timeline, instead turning him into Alfred Bilek, who was born in 1927. Okay. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. What? It makes no sense with the story that's already fucked up. Okay, so he was born in the 40s, used alien technology to go <laughs> to be born 20 years prior. Yeah, his, his thing was, I was actually Duncan's brother. But when we went back in time to go fix the Philadelphia experiment, I was changed and I stayed there and I was turned into Al Bilek. And so now he's an old man in the 80s because he was on the USS Eldridge in World War II. So it's it doesn't make this really is an episode about mental illness <laughs> and the joy of storytelling. <laughs> so they sent Duncan Cameron and Al Bilek or fucking Edward Cameron. Whatever, like, Al Bilek is also Duncan's brother, <laughs> but he's not. So did Duncan, like, believe him? Does it say anything like that? I don't know where Duncan is. I don't think Duncan's alive. Hmm, okay. So the only guy who I didn't see any footage of was Duncan. So those two men were enlisted to take the daring plunge into time and change history. And they failed, obviously. <sighs> You'd think, okay, but they did not. What? Duncan sat in the Montauk chair and manifested a time portal to the USS Eldridge in 1943. Duncan and Al entered the portal, boarded the ship, and disabled the generator. For whatever reason, Al Bilek decided to stay in 1943. Maybe it was alien tech. I don't know. I think he's insane. And Duncan returned to Montauk. Upon exiting the portal to Montauk, Duncan emerged horribly damaged by a skip through time and was dying of old age. Oh my god. Apparently, Duncan's sudden aging posed a problem. Duncan had performed other time jumps in preparation for the mission, and his sudden senior citizen status in 1983 could spawn devastating paradoxes, because all of a sudden, I don't understand it, but I'm just saying, it got all silly, so time could be fucked. I don't understand why, but um, the scientist's solution to this was to send a psychic message to Duncan's father in the past. At the time, Duncan Cameron Sr. had not yet had a son, only a daughter. The instructions were psychically planted in Duncan Cameron Sr.'s brain to begin impregnating his wife with male offspring as soon and as often as possible. What? All in a day's work. Oh my god. The U.S. military. Because of this, Duncan was then conceived and born in 1951. All thanks to the government. <laughs> I know. The scientists then used young Duncan as a vessel for dying Duncan's current electromagnetic signature, which apparently created continuity across all timelines. They took 
you listen, <laughs> let's not even waste time trying to understand this, right? <laughs> and then I guess they also used some sort of reverse aging formula on Duncan using psychic electromagnetic bullshit. So anyways, let's talk about the monster and then we'll be done. Oh my God. This was a roller coaster. Oh, so how do the Mars kids fit into this? Oh God. I, I, there was another, there's a whole other thing where they use like a time hole to enter Mars. <laughs> you see, Mo, there's a pyramid out of Mars, an ancient pyramid. <laughs> And obviously alien technology. So, but that is a tale for, I'd say another day, but never. I think that is, <laughs> I don't know, I'll vomit if I think about that. We don't usually get emails, but if you email us specifically requesting this, then we have to do it. Please don't. So all, all the psychic, all the psychic brainwashing, time traveling had exhausted Preston Nichols and he made the executive decision to shut down the Montauk project. Hmm. After all this happened, he's like, this is obscene. We need to stop this now. This is a disaster. When the decision was made, someone approached Duncan in the chair and whispered the words, The, the time, time is, is now. now. And then this phrase released a monster from Duncan's subconscious. A literal hairy monster. Oh my God. A physical beast that manifested somewhere on the base. Nichols had seen the beast, the monster, and described it as being 10 feet tall, hairy, and vicious. Always the one for details, this Preston Nichols. <laughs> they thought that shutting down the Montauk chair would kind of kill the psychic manifestation. Mm -hmm. Like if we cut power to everything, the monster will go away. But they cut power to everything, the monster did not go away. It continued to destroy the base and slaughter employees. It was like a horrible thing. Eventually, when Duncan was able to close the portal himself, the beast vanished with it. And this was the end of Preston Nichols' involvement with the Montauk Project formally. Now, there are some other things you may see online, people called the Montauk Boys. This is not a soft rock band. <laughs> These are young men who are claimed to have been enlisted by the government in Montauk before and after maybe Preston Nichols' involvement. You know Stranger Things? Yeah. Stranger Things was influenced by the Montauk Project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The creators of the show talked about it. The show was originally going to be called Montauk, and it was going to be based on Montauk, New York. So you know how Eleven in that show, yeah, little bald psychic girl, for those who don't watch it, she's part of all those kids underground who are trained to like use psychic stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like that. So all these boys were kind of abused and kidnapped and kept underground and just tortured psychically for years. Like horrifying stories, if they're real, which they're probably not. But the Montauk boys were these kind of homeless boys, boys in foster care that were mm. enlisted by talent scouts of the military and taken to Montauk and like experimented on hardcore. So um, the claims made by the Montauk boys are similar to those that were made by the victims of MK Ultra. I think there's some overlap there. I think it is influenced by the MK Ultra revelations, which we know are real. So this is probably real too. I mean, again, something like this could have been real. <laughs> but yeah, so the Montauk boys are kind of like what Duncan Cameron was, but like in mass. So let's talk about the truth as we close this story. I thought we were talking the truth. Oh, that's right. Well, that's what they would want you to think. <laughs> Most people tied to the Montauk Project are proven frauds or suspected to be uh, mentally ill. Mm -hmm. Don't want to diagnose. But most disturbing of which I think is Preston Nichols. So Preston Nichols writes briefly. I didn't mention this in the main story, but he writes briefly of his efforts to deprogram the psychic test subjects of Montauk like Duncan Cameron. And he mentions... Well, on his property, Nichols had constructed a replica of the Montauk chair that was used after Montauk. The book comes out. People read it. People go, oh, my God, I was a Montauk boy. 
you know, people who maybe aren't doing so well, right. people yeah. who maybe experience some abuse and they're projecting onto the story and dissociating and stuff like it's that. It's like the star seeds all over again. Yeah, kind of. So you can imagine the type of young man that would come to Preston Nichols and be like, hey, can you deprogram me? Mm -hmm. Nichols mentions that in, in some instances to program information onto a subject, the psychic would need to access their primitive mind, which was reached during sexual climax. Oh my God. You see where I'm going with this? This sounds like the beginning of a cult. Oh, okay. Interesting. So <laughs> the pleasure of an orgasm opened the subconscious and put the subject in a trance that allowed for information to be subconsciously programmed. So that means the same could be hypothetically done to deprogram somebody. So apparently Nichols used a similar method to deprogram these young men that came to him. At one point, Nichols was deprogramming over 20 former Montauk boys as often as several times a week. And after deprogramming sessions, witnesses claimed that Nichols would exit the room covered in sweat and alongside the young men who always looked disheveled and uh, upset. That is disgusting. Yeah. It's believed that the Montauk Project urban legend... Oh, by the way, a group of these Montauk boys all lived together in a house near Preston Nichols, and he called them his disciples. Oh, okay. So kind of uh, culty. Yeah. Uh, he's dead now, so everything's fine. Except for the lives he's ruined by this conspiracy. Uh, culty and also like... <laughs> I mean, I feel like cults always have like some form of sexual assault yeah. as well. And initiation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's believed that the Montauk Project Urban Legend and Preston Nichols' book drew the attention of troubled young men suffering from mental illness and especially PTSD from childhood abuse who could project their trauma onto a science fiction fantasy and dissociate from the harsh reality. That is all I have to say about the Montauk Project. It's a pretty wild ride. I, that was a lot of information I just threw at you. And you know what? I, I loved it and I hated some of it. That's right. All in all, I feel like that was that was very interesting. And these are the people that are involved in this stuff. They're all kind of not okay. Yeah, that was So fun. how do we uh, segue out of this one? <laughs> this is what our tax dollars are going to? <laughs> ba -da -ba -ba -da -ba. And you know, I'm a little disappointed that this ended up being cultish because I kind of want to write a script of like a TV series or something making fun of this. And now it feels a little bit like... I'm making fun of real people's trauma. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you could just view it as like you're fixing it, you know, like you, you're turning it into what it should have been, which was something goofy and harmless. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Maybe I'll still do that. If anyone wants to read it, let me know. And also email us. Yes. At according to an idiot at gmail.com for general feedback, but also to bully Jeremy into making an episode about the kids on Mars. Mars kids. <laughs> kids on Mars. Uh, you can also give us feedback or stay updated on our latest episodes by following us on Facebook and Instagram at According to an Idiot or Twitter at Idiots Accord. If you really liked us, you can help other people find our show and rate us on iTunes and Spotify. Give us five stars and we'll read your review. Good vibes. What's your good vibe? We need one after that. <sighs> My good vibe is making you do a bizarre assortment of things using chat GPT for my amusement, falling in love with Mothman, falling in love with Bigfoot, becoming best friends with Bigfoot with me. Oh. We have so many adventures together. The possibilities <laughs> are endless. I had so much fun doing that. I was cracking myself up. Uh, my good vibe is congressional oversight committees that would probably stop something like the Montauk Project. That don't be... I don't want to be a bureaucrat. I'm just saying I think that it's good sometimes. They can say, hey, let's not waste our money on this. 
Or hey, this is kind of bad. You know what we should spend this money on instead? Giving it to corporations who need it. That finally someone said it. <laughs> they are hungry. They need help. Right. They're going to be bankrupt without us. Yes. What are they going to do if they can't write the laws? Exactly. Operate ethically? No. That's <laughs> horrible. That's horrible. Can I change my good vibes to you finally not being sick anymore? I'm healthy right now, kind of. I'm fresh off COVID. Yeah. But... You got like a brief one, two week period yeah. where you like probably won't get sick again. Nice. And then after that, who knows? Yeah. But for now, you're okay. And that's all that matters. And for now, we will say goodbye to all of you. Yes. Uh, thank you for listening. Did you finish your preamble, your post amble about? I the... think so. Right? Instagram, Facebook, yeah. Twitter. Email us. Rate us. All that good stuff. I think that's it. I think that's all we talk about. I think that's all I say. Uh, that's all. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, <laughs> thank you all for listening. I will see you in time. We love y'all. Bye. See you.